Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the Recovery Project, an initiative launched by Canada 2020, Global Progress, and the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa. The Recovery Project is, as many in this audience will be aware, aimed at charting the path to economic and social recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's session is titled, Adapting Infrastructure Needs in Light of COVID-19. My name is Garrett Jones, and I'm the moderator of today's discussion. I work as an infrastructure investor at the Carlisle Group, a global investment manager headquartered in Washington, DC. I work for the Canadian federal government as senior advisor to the Minister of Infrastructure, the Honorable Amber Sohi, and also advise the Minister of Transport, the Minister of Finance, and the Prime Minister's Office on large infrastructure projects and capital markets-related activities. I'm joined today by three guests. From Ottawa, the Honorable Catherine McKenna, Canada's Special Minister of Infrastructure and Communities and former Minister of Environment and Climate Change, John Porcari, Deputy Secretary of Transportation in the Obama Administration. John is President of Advisory Services for WSP USA and Co-Chair for Joe Biden's Infrastructure Committee, supporting his presidential bid. And from Berlin, Wolfgang Schmidt, State Secretary of the German Federal Ministry of Finance. So to each of you, thanks for making the time to be with us today. And as a note to our audience, we will dedicate the last 15 minutes of the live stream to answering your questions, which you can share via the Zoom section. And so with that, let's get right to it. Mr. McKenna, the first question's for you. At a time in which COVID-19 is impacting society in dramatic ways, be it the demand for public transit to air travel, how must federal and local governments adapt when planning for infrastructure assets whose useful lives can extend beyond 50 years? Well, thanks, Gareth, and, and thanks to everyone in the Recovery Project, and also good to see uh, John Fakari and, and Wolfgang. The world has changed, and the world hasn't changed. Certainly, I, when I came in as Minister of Infrastructure and Communities, the focus was making sure that when you make infrastructure investments, you're getting double and triple duty. Um, so, of course, productivity is incredibly important, but you need to also be planning for the longer term. So climate change is still real. We still <clears throat> need to be thinking about the longer term investments. But I think, I mean, obviously COVID has changed a lot of things too, and it's shown a lot of vulnerabilities uh, that we have. And so I think we need to reflect on them. I think we'll have an opportunity to talk uh, more about them, but some people probably can't even join in because they don't have access to uh, affordable high-speed broadband as one example. In the short term, uh, you know, when you make infrastructure investments, first of all, it's hard to get money out the door. Um, there's often a focus on shovel ready. Um, we've tried to move to shovel worthy. And I think that we need to be looking at how do we exist, how do we invest in existing infrastructure assets so we get the maximum out of those assets. So that's things that you can be doing in the short, short term, like retrofits, uh, renovations, um, repurposing um, infrastructure. And I think in the time of COVID, we have also shown flexibility. We need to be making sure that we respond to uh, what Canadians are looking for. So there's also natural infrastructure. People want to get outside. So can we do more to get access to nature, um, cycling lanes, other opportunities, while at the same time being really focused on the long term? You know, you, you need to be focused on jobs, of course, um, but you also need to be focused on what do you want to be by 2050? And we want to be net zero, but we also want a more inclusive community and we've also, I don't want to tie everything together in my opening statement, but look at it with Black Lives Matter. Inclusivity uh, is also incredibly important as you build. And I think we need to look at social determinants of infrastructure. So I think once again, getting back to when you spend taxpayer dollars, um, hopefully leveraging private sector money as well, you need to get double, triple return. And that is incredibly important and probably even more so as we've seen in COVID-19. That's really interesting. I think you touched on a couple of really critical issues, right? Including prosperity as defined, not just in terms of global GDP growth, but also inclusivity. And so infrastructure is well accepted as a vehicle for driving prosperity, but growth also needs to be inclusive. When you think about the gap in First Nations, Métis, and Northern mm -hmm. particularly acute, how do you view the role of government in helping to bridge that gap, which has really been put under light in COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, that's been a focus of our government since we came in to power. And in fact, I'm, w one of the reasons I got into politics is because the inequity uh, that we see in our own country. And it is unconscionable that you can go to First Nations communities, you can go to the Arctic and Inuit communities, 
go to Métis communities and they don't have the same infrastructure that my kids have. That has an impact directly on their quality of life, but it also has an impact on our productivity. And I don't know we always see it that way because how are these young people going to be able to be productive members of society if we don't provide them with the opportunities, with the supports, with the housing, with the access to broadband, the access to even delivery uh, of healthcare um, via, uh, via video. And so this is something that we need to be focused on. And we've been focused on in, in a tangible way, drinking water. We don't have clean drinking water in communities. So every day there are you know, minister and public servants who focus on how do we make sure each community has clean drinking water. Part of my mandate is getting rural and remote communities off diesel. That's not just a climate issue, that's a health issue because you'll have cleaner air. And so I think though it's hard and I'll be the first to admit that we have a lot of work to do when it comes to the infrastructure deficit for First Nations, Métis and Inuit communities but I've been talking to members of racialized communities, often living in lower income neighborhoods. And sometimes the way infrastructure is delivered, if you are the loudest, you get the infrastructure investment. Or if you're, you know, and, and the problem with that is that a lot of people are just trying to get through the day. Uh, if you're lower income, you don't necessarily have time to be, you know, making sure that you get these infrastructure investments. So I think we need to be extremely mindful. Um, this, this is something that I'm taking on. Of course, I've been focused on climate and we've been working on indigenous communities, but I think we need to think about it more broadly. And the last thing I'll say, because I know there's, there's a lot to say on this, um, but we have to look at what kind of recession we're in. And you've had economists like Armin, and I can't, I apologize, I can never pronounce her last name, but she's talked, talked about this as a she session, that the impact has been greater on women and on other racialized groups on indigenous peoples. And I think we really need to reflect on that in terms of what we build, in terms of where we build, in terms of what other supports, income supports, and other things that we need to do. I'd like to tee up a similar question both for, for John and Wolfgang. So John, you played a critical role in the Obama administration during the great financial recession is using infrastructure as a vehicle for kickstarting the economy. And now you're advising the Biden administration. Similar to the issues in Canada where he, we have um, like challenges with regards to ensuring that growth is inclusive, how are you thinking about these issues in the United States? It's a great uh, question, Gareth, and Minister, great to see you again, and um, <laughs> Wolfgang, looking forward to the discussion. The, the Great Recession in 2009 in the U.S., speed was of the essence, and getting projects out the door and people employed was the number one priority. So we had kind of a high-low mix of um, very simple stormwater management and repaving and uh, relatively simple uh, infrastructure projects. And then the higher end, uh, longer term projects that were more transformative and multi-generational in nature. But there was very little policy overlay. It was to get the economic impact as much as possible. Uh, the, the difference we're seeing now in the discussions uh, in the US, and, and, and certainly uh, you're hearing it um, uh, in the context of uh, the presidential campaign, is to have a framework of equity, of response to climate change, um, and make sure that policy overlay is there, as uh, Minister McKenna mentioned, because you want to squeeze every bit of value that you can out of hard-earned hard tax dollars. And so from an equity point of view, uh, those infrastructure projects should also be providing local employment, skills training, for historically neglected communities, our Native American communities, and others that traditionally haven't benefited uh, from infrastructure that much. And sometimes the infrastructure has been to the detriment of that yeah. community. Um, so that equity framework is really important. Equally important uh, is uh, the response to climate change and adaptation uh, and resiliency. So uh, making sure that we're building and investing in infrastructure that's not just going to serve us and not even uh, us and our children, but generations to come. Um, and that actively is part of the solution as opposed to exacerbating the problem um, of climate change. And, and so when you look at what, for example, Vice President Biden has, his it's electrifying the transport sector as the single largest CO2 emitter, unless and until we get to wholesale and widespread electrification across the board, not just passenger vehicles, uh, medium and heavy duty trucks, maritime, transit, aviation eventually, having that policy overlay of climate change response uh, and resiliency adaptation 
is incredibly important. And I think you'll see, uh, you'll see those kind of smart investments that pay off not just with an economic stimulus now, but as you say, shovel-worthy projects that will pay off for generations. And so, John, what are some of the critical measures that are used to ensure that uh, that a project creates uh, maximized levels of inclusive growth? Is this in the procurement practice, ensuring that local people and local tradesmen and women are are, are used? Is it uh, um, talk us through a little bit of that in the United States? Well, it, in the U.S. context it is first and foremost removing some of the barriers that prevent these larger policy imperatives. So when you talk about local employment um, and you're building, for example, a transit project uh, in the US uh, outside of pilot uh, projects, you're prohibited from having a local uh, 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 employment component. It is very difficult to structure a skills training component uh, that lifts people up the skills ladder as part of the project. So they're, able to qualify for good paying family supporting job. Some of that is uh, legislative changes uh, at the national level. Some of it is just policy changes. So uh, there's a suite of, of policy uh, and uh, proposed legislative changes that will build a strong framework for things like local employment um, and skills training and making sure that good paying family supporting jobs are what come out of it. Uh, e- equally, um, on the uh, climate change side, uh, believe it or not, uh, for the interstate system in the in the United States, charging facilities are prohibited by law. Um, it goes back to the 1950s, um, and removing that barrier. These are not putting gas stations in rest areas. This is actually mm-hmm. providing um, charging stations that would allow both passenger vehicles and trucks to get rid of the range anxiety and make sure that they can actually complete um, significantly longer trips. That's a legal change. There are policy ones as well that stem from that. Um, but what, what we're trying to do now um, as a country, um, and certainly in the context, again, of, of this national discussion of infrastructure, is make sure that we have a comprehensive inventory of what has to change day one and what has to be completed by day 100 uh, to, to actually change the direction of the ship in a more sustainable way. Wolfgang, you and I spoke a little bit earlier today, and you spoke of some of the constitutional elements of infrastructure development in Germany, which really drive, you know, um, the attempt at at, uh, at social and economic equity when German society. Can you touch a little bit more upon that? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, to compare Germany with the U.S. or, or Canada is a bit strange because we are at least compared to, to the U.S., rather small. So I tend to compare the U.S. to the U- European Union and to then have these differences that you're talking about because obviously compared to the U.S. and maybe even to Canada, Germany is a pretty flat society and we have similar living conditions. Nevertheless, in our constitution, it says we, we need to achieve equality of living conditions in all the 16 federal states of Germany. And that is something where we have a lot of transfer mechanisms in place so that the infrastructure basically should be the same in all the regions. But obviously we also have differences between rural areas and urban areas and metropolitan areas and so on and so on. And as we discussed earlier, we are, as everybody, in the midst of this crisis. Um, And I think it's interesting to see how different nations respond to that crisis and to also see the similarities um, and so uh, when both Minister and, and John talked about what, what uh, you've been doing and what you're thinking and what needs to be done, I, I feel pretty much at home um, because we also said when we developed our now stimulus package that was um, agreed upon between the leading political parties in government at the beginning of June and now uh, adopted um, by cabinet and and actually having the first readings also in parliament already, we said we need to not only address the three T's that economists tend to tell you, timely, targeted, and temporary, but to add a fourth one, and that is transformative. So to especially address questions of climate change, of digitalization, but also social cohesion. And so if you look at the stimulus package that we adopted, um, roughly 130 billion euro for the federal level, so equivalent to four to five percent of our GDP, 50 billion out of the 130 billion is actually what we called a future package. And that addresses digitalization, but this addresses as well um, what John talked about, um, the electrification of our 
um, mobility and the, um, the transformation of our car sector, which you know is pretty big in Germany, and for example, has a seven million, uh, seven, sorry, seven billion um, uh, package on hydrogen. Um, so to allow also investment into this new technology. And I think this is um, what you see also at the European level, if you look at the, um, uh, the recovery fund that has been discussed, that it is also linked to something what we call the Green Deal on the European level from the European Commission. So as Churchill said, never let a good crisis go to waste. We should make use of this crisis also to address these issues. Thanks for that, Wolfgang. So, Minister McKenna, I want to just spin it back to you then. When you look at the, the primary challenges for bridging the infrastructure gap, in particular for you know, the, the most vulnerable people within Canada, is the issue simply that there's more money that required? Or is it, is it also a process of capital reallocation and a change in how infrastructure is planned for? I'm, I'm curious as when you think of, you know, if you had a basket of tools at your disposal, is it a mix of you know, more public capital, more private capital, but also a change in, in the planning process? Look, I think you always need to reassess how you're doing. I mean, we had a parliamentary budget officer office uh, report that um, found that we had increased jobs uh, to 91,000 jobs last year, uh, that we'd invested in 53,000 projects, um, that we'd increased uh, GDP by almost a percentage point, three quarters of a percent. So those are all good news. But I think that, yes, that you need to, it's not just money, but money is important. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of private capital. And that's why Canada Infrastructure Bank under Michael Sabia's leadership is going to be so important to crowd in private capital. That's also why I think we need a national infrastructure assessment so that we actually have long-term you know, national goals that we're all moving towards municipalities, provinces, and the federal government, because we have to take into account Canada, you need to be working with all orders of government and you need to be leveraging the capital in the same direction, ideally, um, while making sure that local communities can make their you know, decisions that make the most sense within the frame. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, you have to be mindful. And John uh, you know, was talking about, I, I quite liked it. You said good paying family supportive jobs as part of these contracts, local jobs. Community benefit agreements are important. That's what they're for. They're actually there to make sure that you're supporting local communities, um, that you are looking at diverse uh, contractors that, uh, you know, that are going to uh, look at a diverse network um, of suppliers. Uh, those are really important. And as I say, I think we also need to be mindful where we're spending the money. We can't all just spend it, you know, in particular places. Um, we spend a lot of time talking about cities, but rural areas also need investments to succeed. Indigenous communities you know, the north and in some downtown communities, they need, you know, greater investments. So I think, look, I think you can always be smarter. You know, sometimes I get pushback. I'll be honest. Province will say having a climate lens or, you know, duty to consult with indigenous peoples or community benefits agreements just slows it all down. I'm not for red tape. I'm a very practical person. Um, so you got to do things in, a, in an expedited way, of course. But this is taxpayer money. And we cannot be wasting money. And I maybe because I'm just a practical mom, that I'm just going to make sure that dollar goes as far as it can to get these other outcomes. And I think that requires discipline. It requires shovel-worthy rather than shovel-ready. And it also requires flexibility. Like in the time of COVID, we have not announced a stimulus plan. Uh, you know, we've done massive supports across the economy uh, to make sure that we're supporting uh, Canadians and businesses. Uh, and, and also addressing the health pandemic. But I, we also, within our infrastructure program, have adjusted our infrastructure program. That with our existing uh, money, we should be making sure that we're actually looking at what are the other areas we should be supporting as a result of COVID. Um, we need to be looking at broadband. We had a target of, uh, we've got a very big country, so it sounds unambitious, but getting a high-speed affordable broadband across the country by 2030 was a stretch. That has to be, like, that is not just a productivity issue anymore. That's an equity issue. That's a, whether you can, I had three kids at home. If I didn't have access to the internet, they wouldn't be able to do school or video games probably too, but uh, with their friends. But, you know, we need to look at how can you be flexible, but how can you also be disciplined? And it's hard to be disciplined because there's a lot of pressures on you and all sorts of folks, you know, you want to do these things, get money at the door quickly. The one good thing I'll say about our, 
our infrastructure plan because we made historic investments in infrastructure when we came into government five years ago the projects are coming now you know i'm not gonna you know talk too much of parliamentary budget uh, officer report but it's important that he's saying you know look we're actually seeing you're getting the projects so now we have a lot of projects and so we can accelerate some of them we can prioritize some of them and as we look at stimulus I think there's some lessons that are learned that we want to be applying, you know, of course, focus on climate, but on equity um, more broadly. And in the shorter term, yes, uh, on jobs, although the construction sector has been hit less um, than other sectors of the economy right now. But I mean, look, it has to be both. Of course, more money, but it's not always more money. It's about being smarter about how you spend the money. Thanks for that. John, uh, a similar question for you. I think Minister McKenna just kind of outlined some critical targets that the government is seeking to achieve that will drive inclusivity, you know, clean water to, to remote communities, um, ensuring, uh, you know, communities have access to broadband. When you apply that in the U.S. context, when you think about specific targets that may come out of the Biden administration for, for driving inclusive growth, Granted, the U.S. is is vastly different than Canada in the sense of it's far more densely populated than the Canada. But when you think about some of you know tangible, achievable targets to drive inclusivity in the United States, what comes up for you? It's a great question, and and I think first we all need to take a step back and remember what infrastructure is. It's a means to an end. It's to improve quality of life. These then you actually have a target. We lose track of that. We tend to do less. Optimal. If this discussion were 10 years ago, broadband wouldn't be in the same place as, as it is today in this discussion, whether it's because of COVID-19 or it's as essential a utility uh, as water um, and wastewater and electricity uh, these days um, in communities large and small. It, it requires strategies uh, to bring it to rural areas, for example, um, and coupling the desirability of uh, broadband providers to get into urban areas with the requirement that they also serve rural areas by combining uh, some of those procurements uh, is one tool that actually um, has worked well in the past to bring broadband to those communities. Um, but again, the equity lens that we talked about earlier uh, is really how we want to um, uh, look at projects and, uh, and how they're serving the larger community needs. Um, if you're looking uh, at a transit project, um, what it does to either help or hurt affordable housing as part of that, um, how it uh, ties in with the first and last mile uh, and the active transportation components, uh, walking, um, biking, et cetera. Those are the kinds of things that we look at in a much more sophisticated way. Now, um, again, if you take a step back, we should really rethink of what right-of-way is. So right-of-way is not a roadway um, and government is not the owner of it. It's a steward of a, of a precious resource. And that right-of-way resource, should we should be thinking about uh, broadband, water and wastewater. We should be thinking about the vertical dimension for unmanned aerial mobility. We should be thinking about inductive charging um, so uh, we can actually uh, charge electric vehicles uh, as they use that right-of-way. But to think of it, almost in real estate terms is a higher and better use um, and, and maximize the, the uh, stewardship of right away as a precious resource. If you do that, we end up with different project decisions um, and arguably much better ones. And you see that, um, uh, not to the extent that we'd like, but you're starting to see that uh, a lot in the US and in other countries as well. And uh, so we have an extraordinary opportunity here, I, I think all of us, to use this uh, economic development need for infrastructure uh, to make it a twofer or a threefer uh, and, and, uh, and, and achieve larger goals. That's very helpful. So then if we can then spin um, in towards sustainability. And so Mr. McKenna, you know, given your leadership of the climate change file before becoming Minister of Infrastructure, you're really in a unique position to understand how well infrastructure and climate policy are, are deeply intertwined. Um, and so you have a series of tools at your disposal uh, to both drive economic growth, um, but on top and inclusive growth at that, uh, inclusive growth at that, but also to achieve this, this government's pi uh, climate policy objectives. When you look at the, the role of the Canada Infrastructure Bank and the role that your department can play, 
are there certain kind of market failures that you look at as being sweet spots for the Canada Infrastructure Bank to address and thus infuse private capital into? Or are there other areas that you look at? John alluded to the electrification of the transit sector. What are the sweet spots within green policy and what is your role and the, the organizations that report up to you's role in helping achieve those objectives? That's a really good question. Um, so I should say the Canada Infrastructure Bank uh, is, is independent, although you know we put in government money and we think there's huge opportunity to crowd in private sector investment. So the transformation of our economies to a cleaner future is extraordinarily expensive. It's a huge opportunity. It's a huge op- green opportunity. It's a huge job opportunity and it's a necessity for a more sustainable future. Um, but we need we need money, and so that's the that's the role of the Canada Infrastructure Bank, and I mean it has a number of areas that it's focused on. One of the, one of them is Clean Power Fund, a five billion dollar Clean Power Fund. And what many Canadians don't know is that we're all already eighty percent clean electricity. That's a huge competitive advantage for Canada. They certainly know that in Quebec uh, with Hydro Quebec, but I think. There's an opportunity. We've said we're going to get to 90% clean electricity uh, by 2030. I can imagine Germany would be very happy. I know you're making the investments and you're making the transition, but it's hard um, because workers are involved um, when you're talking about moving away from coal. And I've had many conversations with my German counterpart about that. We We had a just transition task force. But getting back to the bank, I mean, I think the bank has a huge role to to, to correct market failures, you say. Um, why did we, I worked so hard in my past job uh, to get a price on pollution because there's a market failure. We're not pricing externalities. So we need to be doing that. And there's capital sitting on the table. If we can you know, figure out a way to use government money to you know, figure out the proper risk uh, allocation, to figure out what are the opportunities and to create a pipeline of projects, getting back to national infrastructure assessment, so I think, look, I, I'm not going to be prescriptive, and I know that Michael Sabia has many ideas about this, but some areas that I think are huge opportunities. Um, I think that we need to be looking, um, and we talked about clean power and transmission lines. We've talked about this for 30 years or longer in our own country. I actually laugh because my son made me this. Oh, well, it broke, but I've got a little windmill here. But, uh, you know, there's huge opportunities there to um, be uh, totally electrifying the grid. I, I think retrofits, we need to do massive retrofits, whether it's our government, which we've made as a commitment in the campaign. Um, I think the private sector retrofits are perfect opportunities uh, for the private sector to be involved. Um, I look at electric buses. So uh, competitive advantage is important. We have three companies, uh, New Flyer out of Winnipeg, Lyon Bus, um, and Nova Bus out of Quebec. And we should be using electric buses, especially since we're on so much clean electricity in Canada. And we should be, you know, leveraging that and creating companies that are even bigger so they're supplying the world. So I think there's many opportunities. And I think that um, working with the infrastructure bank, we can figure out a way to expand uh, and increase the infrastructure dollars uh, and do the transformative change. Because I'm not in this job to do little things. We If we are going to meet our climate goals as a country and as a world, we have to be extraordinarily ambitious, extraordinarily ambitious, way more ambitious than we are now. And we need everyone to be part of it. I think there's always like, if only, you know, it's always focused on the federal government. No, it's all of us. It's all of us from our purchasing decisions all the way up to like the infrastructure bank. We've got great pension funds um, who tell me they want to be doing more here. So I think, that's the opportunity. I think you're going to see some uh, real progress. Uh, Michael Sabia, as I say, uh, formal head of Caisse de Depot, um, he did the REM. The, there's also public transit opportunities. He did the, the major REM project in Montreal. And so we all got to be working together. And that's why I think having some more clarity to the private sector, to Canadians on what our path is to 2050 is really important. Because then everyone will see, okay, here are the opportunities. And that includes every province. And I should say that sometimes people think I'm talking about certain provinces or certain people. No, no, everyone has to be part of this. Everyone needs and deserves a job. Every community deserves to thrive. I know Wolfgang, you have to think about that in Germany as you move off coal. But there are huge opportunities and much better opportunities because we know from the example of the US that you look at the jobs in coal versus the jobs in renewable. I mean, it's the same in Canada, but it is a huge transformation 
And that's not even the government necessarily. That's just the private sector following where the opportunities are. So I think we got a lot of opportunities, but it's going to require some discipline. It's going to require ministers working together, but also us working with different orders of government and with the private sector. Before we go to John Wolfgang, can you just give us your views on on the integration coming from a finance perspective, but integrating sustainability objectives, uh, both in the kind of German and EU context, which uh, you all have been leaders on? Yeah, well, I think our both our infrastructure minister and and the environmental minister are, are happy with us because um, I think you could see a clear shift in in Germany's politic, politics. Um, both towards investment, because we saw that we lift on our uh, infrastructure, so we know that there is a huge need um, to really invest into the traditional infrastructure, but also in supporting the transformation um, that Catherine was also talking about, no? especially phasing out of, of not only the nuclear power, electricity production by this uh, by the end of 2022, but also now uh, having the next goal of getting rid of coal um, electricity production at the latest by the end of 2035. So this is an immense amount of money that is needed for um, transition grids, um, for the transportation lines, um, for the grids on the local area to electrify um, the, the transportation. And so I think from the finance minister's point of view, um, we heavily support that because we know, as as Minister was talking, this is the huge um, opportunity for our economy, and and there's lots of of, uh, of um, employment opportunities as well. But we need to make sure, and there's where the government comes in, that this transition does not leave people behind, and and so that this is really a just transition. It it requires huge effort, um, and so we set aside a 40 billion euro package over the next 10 years just to support those regions where we're going to fade out um, uh, coal um, electricity. Because these workers, highly trained workers, you can't just tell them, okay, you're out of your job um, because of a governmental decision. Good luck. No, um, eventually you'll find a new job. No, we have to, in these regions, we have to make sure that they support it. Because if we don't, we can see it in the US with flyover states and, and the Rust Belt. What happens um, if they have a feeling that this transition that we as a society want um, is actually only um, producing bad results for them. So that is, I think, a, a very intelligent way of, of investing also in the cohesion of our society. Thanks for that, Wolfgang. John, yeah, I'd be curious to hear your views at the federal level of the United States, where unlike, um, where there is not a national carbon price, but we see there are regional traded markets. Um, when you think about sustainability and infrastructure, um, both kind of from your current perch at WSP under a Biden administration. What are your views on the sweet spots of where the federal government has a role to play to advancing the sustainability of infrastructure assets being developed in the United States? It's a great question, Gareth. First, there's a common misconception in the U.S. that uh, is held by many that the decision-making is all at the federal level and, it, and innovation, for example, trickles down to the local jurisdictions. In practice, it's actually the opposite. The innovation happens at the local level, uh, and uh, whether it's counties or municipalities or states, it aggregates into national policy. And I mention that because um, while there is no price on carbon nationally, there are some pioneering efforts um, uh, in California with cap and trade, for example, um, in uh, other states that have banded together for emissions reductions, uh, and uh, those will aggregate, I'm convinced, into national policy will drive the national policy. Uh, so, so it's important to remember where the innovation is and how it actually works. Um, and, uh, and beyond that, uh, these are decisions that cities and states and other local uh, and state jurisdictions have made in straight economic terms. Yes, it's the right thing to do, um, but they're looking at this triple bottom line where um, it's, it's not just the initial infrastructure cost of building um, more green infrastructure, of electrifying the transport sector, they're looking at the life cycle cost. They're looking at the societal uh, impacts of a carbonized economy uh, and what we have to pay on a daily basis to, to try to mitigate that. 
So uh, it, it's this is a classic case where national policy has lagged the innovation at the local level in the United States, uh, but it leaves a lot of room uh, to build a national consensus going forward uh, on doing this. And anybody who doesn't believe the climate change is the existential crisis of our generation is not paying attention to facts. Um, and and if, if you don't start from that premise, you're not going to get uh, uh, where you need to. If you accept that premise, there's all kinds of things, the federal loan programs, the competitive grant programs, just to name two, that can actually be retooled to better fit that objective, to build uh, greener infrastructure in a way that passes on sustainable economic growth to our children and grandchildren. Thanks for that, John. I'm going to spin this back to you, Mr. McKenna, because one of the things that you and I have spoken about previously is that in a world in which assets are becoming uh, more sustainable, in many instances, that involves them becoming decentralized, digitized, and more democratized, as opposed to the older model of significant, very large centralized assets, power plants, where electricity is transmitted over high voltage power lines into homes. Mm -hmm. And so, but the punchline there is that smaller assets, more distributed in nature, means that these are smaller checks and smaller projects. But the, the federal government, of course, is set up to operate at scale and size. Is there mm -hmm. a need? You evolve some of the policy tools or some of the mechanisms that exist to enable um, governments both at the federal level as well as at the provincial and municipal level to effectively understand that, you know, in this case, it's not about writing big checks anymore, but it may involve writing a ton of smaller ones. So that's a great point. It makes me think, uh, I guess we don't travel anymore, but it makes me think of a, a place called Summerside PEI. If you ever get to go there, pretty amazing. It's a town that had to reinvent itself. Uh, military town and and they left and so they decided that they were going to go green um, so district energy looking at now people are driving in Summerside they're driving electric vehicles their swimming pool is they recycle recycle the heat they're very smart about this um, they've been, been able to attract Siemens and 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 that's the opportunity what is the challenge we're not necessarily set up that way um, we have large regulators, regulated sectors. Um, as you say, uh, you know, the, the, when you invest in infrastructure, often you're looking for these big projects, but we don't have a choice. And, and in fact, consumers are kind of demanding this, right? They want to be part of the solution. So if they want to have solar panels on the roof and save money on their bill, you're going to have to figure out a different way, you know, of, of operating. I mean, to John's point, I mean, if you can't even get the charging stations on the road, uh, you got a problem. Um, but I think, look, there's a number of ways you do that. Uh, I think that, you know, government needs to adapt 100% for sure. Um, but also you can bundle projects. And we've thought about this a lot because if you talk, let's take a retrofit program. Um, if you're just looking at house by house, building by building, um, you're going to cut checks. That is going to be really hard. Um, government is not set up to do that. I mean, no one's set up to do that. But if you, and how are you gonna get private capital? Because people aren't gonna to wanna to do it one building at a time. I mean, so the opportunity there, and I've spent time with the New York Green Bank and others is you bundle these and you figure out ways so that you actually can have large scale investments, but in a smarter way, or you work directly with the municipality to reimagine how they're gonna fund these investments that you want, uh, you know, taking money off of people's bills as opposed to tying you know, something to, uh, to an asset. So I think there's creative ways of doing this and government, like we do need to adapt and we need to create the right incentives and we don't have to do everything. That's the other thing. I think that we should be focused on what are gonna have the big impacts. What are the tools? I mean, you have to have carrots and sticks. So for electric vehicles, you're gonna have to have some carrots. Um, that's why we have an incentive program. Um, if you buy an electric vehicle, federal government um, will give you an incentive of $5,000. That can be matched by province, certain provinces. We hope all provinces would do that. I don't think it's a stick, um, but you can put a price on pollution to create incentives to save money, uh, that you can require climate disclosure so uh, that you have businesses making better decisions. Um, they should be making these decisions, I think, for their own sake, um, because in the long term, you're not going to be a successful business if you don't understand risk. Um, but unfortunately, it's, it's newer for folks and quantifying the risk can be challenging. I think, look, there's a lot, but we did a climate plan, had 50 measures. It took a year to negotiate and it created a high level framework of all the areas we need to do. And the good thing about climate in some ways, the telephone is binary. 
everything you do either increases emissions or reduces emissions. It either makes you more resilient or less resilient. So if you're making rational decisions, I mean, sometimes it's harder. What is the future going to look like? We know if we continue doing this, we're just going to be terrible um, for a whole range of reasons. And we have choices that we can make these smarter decisions. Government is not always that adaptable. That's why sort of every day <laughs> I'm like trying hard to change things. Um, but I see it at all levels. I see it. We just made an announcement with Guelph, Ontario. Uh, well, Guelph, also Waterloo, Ontario. Very focused on electric buses and focus on cycling infrastructure so it ties into their transit. There's no point in having great transit if you can't get people to the transit in a sustainable way. So I think we're getting smarter, but we got to be smarter faster. Um, and it has to be all hands on deck. And we can't, I really think what Wolfgang said, I just have to emphasize that, that it has to be something that people understand. And it can't be elitist. It can't be that, you know what, we're going in this direction. You aren't going to have a job, but sorry, you're just collateral damage with our transition to a cleaner economy. So you have to do that. Not just because I'm a politician and you have to do that to get elected, because we believe in people. We believe in equity. And so we want everyone to be part of this. But I have great faith because it's just an irresistible option and it's just the logical choice. And, and I think Mark Carney's put it best. We'll either like figure it out um, and be smart about it. We're gonna go off a cliff and then we'll figure it out. It'll just be a heck of a lot harder and a heck of a lot more expensive. We've got pushed into the Q&A section and we've getting a lot of questions from attendees. And more than a few have related to rural strategies. And so mm -hmm. I'm aware of the fact that we've got four individuals located in heavily urban areas talking about rural strategies. And so, you know, when you think about the, the toolkit that would be required to effectively address some of the, the policy objectives that you talk about, Mr. McKenna, do you feel as though you have sufficient tools and capital? or do you feel as though more is required, different set of tools? Um, and the same would apply after we speak with you, Mr. McKenna, we speak about some similar issues to, uh, to you, John and, and Wolfgang, despite the fact that neither of your nations are quite as uh, remotely populated as, as Canada's is. So I do think that you have to have rural and Northern strategies, um, even how you're gonna get uh, internet access to people across our country. I mean, you're gonna have to look at different so technical solutions, just a reality. I mean, the, the, the high Arctic, you're not gonna be laying fiber, right? So there's, there's actually just actual real things. Um, but I think you also, I mean, the key to being successful at anything is making sure that you actually understand the particular circumstances in which people live. Because I think to, Wolfgang or John's point, like infrastructure is kind of a made up bureaucratic word. Like, I don't know, someone came up with this word, it's terrible, it doesn't mean anything to anyone, and it's something that we say all the time, and then people are scratching their heads. They're like, hmm, I think you're talking about roads and bridges, maybe. Like, infrastructure now is, you know, high speed, it, it's high speed broadband, it's clean drinking water, it's, it's natural infrastructure. So all of these pieces have to fit in. Um, but look, everyone deserves a good quality of life. So if you live in a rural area or northern community right now, you're probably having a really hard time accessing the internet. So we need to fix that. Um, you know, you maybe you need better transportation. We need better rail in our country to connect communities, including, you know, the major centers, but also other communities. Um, you know, you need to recognize that there are different challenges, but sometimes different opportunities, because if you're self-contained, you can sometimes come up with better local solutions. And the one thing I have learned in this job, I mean, I, every day I feel like I, you know, feel like I learned something new and think, gosh, like, oh, I really could have done a lot better if I knew that. Like, you got to work with the local community. And no, like, if you go to the high Arctic, and you try to come up with our solutions from the South, you're going to epically fail for so many reasons. They're not going to be culturally appropriate. They're not going to actually work. Um, they're not going to, uh, you know, change lives. You'll have infrastructure that'll, you know, not be able to be maintained. So I think you have to work with communities and that can be very challenging. Like with indigenous communities, when we talk about scale, everyone wants scale. If we only came in with a solution and the community's like, okay, sorry, we want to be part of the solution. We want to come up with something that makes sense for us. And we want it to create jobs and economic opportunity. And so I think that, you know, that's, that certainly requires some effort, but we have a minister who's responsible um, for rural affairs. And so she's working hard, broadband, obviously a key part of it, but there's 
many aspects. And, and you know what, in, in many rural communities, they are not succeeding and thriving like cities, you know, where people are living in cities are. And so we need to look at that and what opportunities do young people have there? Um, do you have community centers? One of my, one of my buckets um, you know, of investments is in community uh, and recreational facilities. I'm an athlete. Like I wouldn't be here, I think, if I didn't, you know, wasn't lucky to be able to go swim in a pool every day and have someone, you know, provide me with some discipline and some opportunities and some lessons. And so these are the things that actually help shape individuals, provide opportunities and create the, the conditions to succeed. And so infrastructure, it's not just this, all it is, you know, this is infrastructure, but infrastructure, we didn't even get to social infrastructure very much, but huge parts, um, of how people will succeed. And that has to be people who live in rural and Northern communities as much as it is as people who live in cities. That's very helpful. I think it comes up quite frequently, John, because Canadians think a lot about the, the drinking water issue as it impacts First Nations communities and many communities across Canada. Um, but you hear about the, the fact that Flint is still on, on bottled water um, over, over many years now. Um, and so the, the question I would have for you then somewhat lost, I believe, in the conversation in and around the need for, for greater equity in U.S. society and kind of a broader conversation on globally on that topic has been the, uh, the plight of First Nations or Aboriginal people in the United States. Are some of the issues that you see when you review the data, it seems to be they seem, these communities seem to suffer from a, a lot of similar issues. Do you think that the U.S. federal government pays a similar level of attention to the struggles of the Aboriginal communities in the United States? There's much more that we need to do for uh, our Native American uh, communities and rural com communities in general. But beyond the um, apathy and neglect that you've seen in the past, uh, uh, we need a larger infrastructure strategy. Uh, one of the things that we did in the Recovery Act uh, uh, in the Obama administration was have a rural set aside uh, for competitive grant programs. Mm -hmm. For example, 25% went to rural areas. Um, and beyond that, on a benefit cost analysis basis, a lot of these rural projects actually scored very well uh, mm -hmm. because these are farm to market roads. Uh, this might be an inland waterway uh, that's moving agriculture or, or manufactured uh, uh, products. Um, so uh, the, the, it starts with acknowledging how we have not just underserved Native Americans and historically minority communities and urban areas as well uh, in the US, but we've actively hurt them to some extent with the infrastructure decisions that we've made in the past. If you start from that premise, we can look at ways that that um, uh, infrastructure, yes, the I word, can actually help communities. The concerted efforts that you saw in the U.S., for example, during the Great Depression with the Rural Electrification Administration and the Tennessee Valley Authority were explicit acknowledgments that we're one nation and we sometimes have to disproportionately um, reach out and benefit financially um, rural areas and underserved populations just to level the playing field. Your yeah. Flint drinking water example uh, is a stark one. Um, it is uh, a basic human right to have uh, clean potable drinking water, uh, but we don't have it everywhere. And we have a highly fragmented system in the U.S. for delivery of, of clean water where we have not focused uh, on the uh, the areas rural and urban uh, that we need actually need to provide that to in a systematic way. So um, much work to be done, but it really begins by acknowledging uh, what's happened in the past, why it was wrong, and what we need to do differently. And I think you're seeing that process in the U.S. now in, in many ways. It's healthy, and it ultimately builds a national consensus for us to do a better job. We've got time for, I think, one more question. And I think the Another question that's been coming through from uh, from our, our attendees, and I'll tee this up for you, Minister McKenna, is in you know in the private sector, there's a very rigorous way of tracking the success of any particular investment, and there's a reporting mechanism that goes through to, uh, to through to your Limit Partners that allows you to monitor whether or not you're doing a good job of allocating capital. In the government, there's not always that same process, and so how do you see a how do you see a process for improving the tracking of outcomes so that you can assess the government's relative performance in, in the capital allocation process of taxpayer dollars? That's actually, it's so timely that you asked this because, I mean, there's been so much focus on how many projects did you do 
um, and you track it based on number of projects. So you want to know we did 53,000 projects. I mean, what does that mean to anyone? But it's a lot, I guess, or it's not a lot, depending on your vantage point. How much money did we spend? Uh, we uh, spent $51 billion. So to Canadians, like that's a lot of money, but so what? Um, getting closer to something, it created 91,000 jobs last year. Okay, so that, that actually means something to someone. But like I just said, so what are we doing for outcomes? And like, I really mean that. It's not that I, I, I mean, I think it's good. We, we're focused on public transit. We're focused on green infrastructure, rural and northern communities, community and rec centers, trade and transportation corridors. That's great. But those are just areas. Those are not outcomes. And so I really think that a focus less on how many projects did you do and moving to what outcomes did you get? Because that is the only way you get to net zero by 2050. That's the only way you tackle housing crisis and have housing for all by 2030. That's the only way you get high speed, affordable broadband by what faster date than 2030. That's for sure. That's the only way you get 80% clean power by 20. You have to have outcomes. I'm a very like taxpayer dollars are very important and you need to be making sure that you are getting the value. And so I think we're all right now, not in the place I think we need to be. I think that this is, once again, I just, this national infrastructure assessment where you say, okay, this is what we want. And we actually kind of know what we want in Canada. Like we have a climate plan. We have a strategy for housing. We have a strategy for clean drinking water. But linking those directly to investment dollars and outcomes, I think we'll just get it to a much better place. So I'm not telling Canadians how many projects I did. I'm saying, how did, I, how did we transform people's lives? And it's not even me. It's like, how did everyone work together? Different orders of government with the private sector, with Indigenous communities. How did we do things that are going to mean you had clean drinking water, that you accept access to affordable high-speed broadband, that you had a roof over your head, that you have clean energy, that you have clean air, that all of these things that we want. And so that is really my focus. I mean, look, I said I had three priorities when I came in. It's funny, when you become in as a new, new minister, you have to like right away say what you're going to do. One uh, was making sure that we get the most value out of infrastructure dollars working with different orders of government. And value is not project numbers. Value is outcomes to me. Um, Getting projects built quickly, I think that's important. We, you know, there had been a need to speed up our infrastructure program. And then I think it's building the candidate you want. And that's so important that I have three kids that, you know, we owe it to them as we invest these dollars to really think, okay, what, what world do we want for them? And they already know what world they want. They want a clean world. They want a connected world. They want an inclusive world. And we can do that. Like, I actually have great faith we can do it. It's, is it hard every day? Sometimes connecting the dots every day is hard. Um, but I think there's an opportunity. And I do want to really give a shout out. We didn't actually probably hear as much as I would have loved to hear about uh, what Germany is doing. Um, John and I have had a, a conversation. It's also sharing best practices with progressive governments about how do you do this better? If social determinants of infrastructure sounds kind of nerdy, but I'm a little bit nerdy, but what does that mean? How do you do that? And how do you ensure a just transition? So I think sharing these, these practices is so important. Having sessions like this where we can get input. I've seen a lot of the, the different questions and inputs that are coming in. Um, and I have to do, someone was saying, learn from history. So I will just take here, there we go, crisis uh, of the old art order, uh, Roosevelt um, looking at FDR and the, you know, the New Deal and then the Green Deal, uh, New Deal. And then I have another one, if we're just going to share books here, Mariana Mazzucato. She does talk about how investments in public that the government makes are important. It's not just the private sector. In fact, that a lot of the big changes we've seen uh, have been um, public sector investments. And so we got to do this, but we have to be smart about how we do it. Thanks for that. And I think those were kind of, think in my mind, very moving remarks because I think you've worked on climate change and global policy, but also you're also a member of parliament for, for your community. And so infrastructure is not something abstract. These are bridges that you build in your communities that enable you and your children to ride through on their bicycles. And so it's something that's deeply personal. And so if we could just have some final remarks, we've run slightly over time, but if I'd like to give all three of you a chance to provide some concluding remarks on maybe on, uh, on some of your thoughts you'd like to, to provide. And after that, we're gonna have to wrap up this session. Well, uh, I've talked too much, so I'm gonna let John and Wolfgang go and I'll just take a tiny thing. 
Thanks. What's really great about this discussion today is the similarity of themes. If you look at, we might have slightly different approaches from in the U.S., but I think we all recognize the imperatives in front of us and how we need to use infrastructure as a positive tool to, to meet the future. Um, and uh, it, it, Minister, as you mentioned, we should all be shamelessly copying from each other, taking best ideas, uh, which is something that we uh, all do. There are a lot of different approaches to get to the same end goal. But, but what we're all trying to do is build a more equitable uh, and just and sustainable world. Um, we were in much more difficult circumstances than we have right now. Our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents built an infrastructure that carried us to this point today. We have an obligation to do that for the future. We have an obligation to do it better. And, we, and smarter uh, because we have learned more in the meantime. Uh, that means uh, responding to climate change. It means squeezing more value out of infrastructure uh, by having it provide good paying, family supporting local jobs through community benefit agreements, lots of mechanisms that actually yeah. uh, make it a force for good in the communities. And we do need to bear in mind uh, that, uh, that not everybody started in the same place here and whether um, whether it's a native tribe, whether it's a historically discriminated against community, we need that as part of infrastructure. And one of the great things about it is it can be a great equalizer in providing opportunities that didn't exist before. Well, thanks for that, John. Uh, Wolfgang, over to you. Thank you. And actually, I could just second with what John said. Um, I, I always find it stunning that um, despite the differences where you come from different systems and, and legal frameworks and so on, uh, mm -hmm. actually, we are pretty much focusing on the same questions. But maybe because I was today in a, in a G7 call with my colleagues and we are all from G7 countries, I think it's also a good opportunity that it's not only in our countries where we have all these opportunities and can talk about these technicalities, uh, especially in these days of the COVID crisis, we should think about all the other countries that do not have the means yeah. of doing what we are discussing. And, and I don't know, Canada is a big sponsor, hopefully um, the US will return to the multilateral agenda uh, and be part of that endeavor as well. But just to imagine what is going on at the moment in Africa and in Asia and parts of Asia and parts of Latin America, um, where this crisis is not only hitting societies that have a very fragile health system, but also where the economic impact is so devastating uh, that we need to take them into consideration. And I'm, I know that, that um, the current Term Canadian government and hopefully future U.S. governments will be joining the European Union to not forgetting these countries as well. I mean, that is a very good point. So thank you, Wolfgang. We have inequities within Canada, but around the world, huge inequities. Uh, we have moral obligation, um, but also if you care about it, there's always good ways to make arguments from a whole range of ways. Uh, if you care about actually tackling climate change, can't do it alone. Pollution doesn't know any borders. Uh, and if you worry about wars, uh, you know, there's going to be wars over scarcity of resources um, and or refugees, climate refugees. So we need to continue doing that. We did make a significant investment um, on climate in both on um, mitigation and adaptation, but absolutely. And, and we've seen, you know, here at home, uh, vulnerabilities with COVID, whether it's in you know, lack of affordable housing or long-term care facilities, but imagine these other places. So I think that is, thank you, a very important reminder. We're all in this together and uh, we're very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to live in a country like Canada. Look, I, I mean, I don't know what else we can say. There's, I mean, you could talk for about eight more hours or you could just kind of end it there. Um, the only thing I maybe I could say is in this role, I started off um, and I focused really on, I was a minister of infrastructure, but my title actually includes communities. So now I kind of see myself more as a minister of communities because in COVID, your community has become everything. And I think it, it has been the reminder that infrastructure is not just a, it's just not a hard thing, it's about lives. And I think that really focusing on, uh, John, I think I, the way I put it, uh, productive, because of course, uh, productivity, infrastructure increases productivity. That's kind of, you know, where economists want you to, some economists uh, want you to go, but, uh, also building a more equitable, sustainable, and resilient country. I think that's how we need to be thinking about these outcomes. And so 
I, I still have a, a lot more to learn in this file, but I think there's, there's huge opportunities there. And um, I feel really fortunate. It sounds terrible, but as you say, Wolfgang, Churchill said it, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I think as we think about the investments that we want to make to restart our economy and uh, get people working, just think not just about tomorrow, think about the 50 years um, and really be focused on the outcomes. I will thank you very much. Um, so that's all the time we have for today. Apologies for going slightly over. That's on me as the moderator. <laughs> thanks to the audience for listening and to asking some very thoughtful questions. For those who would like to listen to this conversation again or to uh, be able to watch it via video, it will be available on the recoveryproject.org website. Thank you again. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you all. And thanks, Recovery Project. This is awesome. And you did a great job, Gareth. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.